0: Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen as always hello and welcome to fp live that's live for you i'm ravi Agrawal, fp's editor-in-chief my guest today is one of america's most important diplomats he's a renowned negotiator who's been at the forefront of arbitration efforts and talks with leaders of countries and organizations including iran north korea syria and even hamas just to name a few he's been a top advisor to three u.s presidents responsible for designing their foreign policies and strategies on key issues concerning American national security and international relations. Robert Malley will join us. So, on to our discussion today. President Joe Biden campaigned on reviving and re-entering the Iran nuclear deal that Donald Trump famously left. We are now almost two years into Biden's first term as president, and there is no deal in sight. Today, with a much more hardline president in power in Iran— The deal known as the JCPOA seems less viable than it was, say, a year ago. Moreover, Iran is focused on taming its own domestic woes over the two months have passed since mass protests erupted in the country after Massa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, died in Tehran after being violently detained by the morality police. Protests demanding regime change continue to grow and have captured global attention. Meanwhile, Iran has chosen to get involved In Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine, it's providing military drones to Russia and now will also help Moscow build more self-detonating drones on Russian soil. So with all of these new developments, how worried is Washington about the growing Russian-Iranian alliance? What would it take to revive the nuclear deal? How does Washington perceive the protests in Iran? And just how close is Iran to the bomb? To answer all of these questions and more, time to bring in our guest. Robert Malley is the Biden administration's special envoy for Iran. He has advised two other U.S. presidents. Prior to his latest stint in government, he served as president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. He is also, of course, a longtime FP contributor. Rob, thanks for coming on.
2: Robbie, thanks for having me.
0: All right. Welcome to FP Live. It's great we can do this. So I have to start with this. Football, soccer, Congratulations on the US defeating Iran in the World Cup match yesterday. Were you
2: watching? I, of course, and I I know very few people who weren't.
0: That's true, uh, other than me, because I was watching England Wales. But um, let's just spend a beat on 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 what we saw, and 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 also just sort of the last few weeks. You know, Iranian players refrained from singing their national anthem in their first game. What did you make of that?
2: So first, I want to say again, uh, it was a great win for 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 Team USA, uh, and to my many Dutch friends out there, shout out! I think they're in for a nasty surprise on Saturday. Um, other image, I think iconic image from the game was when uh, one of our players, Robinson, uh, you know, hugged and consoled an Iranian player who was distraught. There were a lot of overlays of politics uh, around this, as 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 you know, a lot that that was going on, and that is still going on this was just a soccer game. And I think that's, that you know, we should focus now on what's happening in Iran, as you mentioned, the, the, the horrendous repression crackdown that uh, the regime is inflicting on, on protesters. The game is over. Um, I think there, now, now we, we continue to focus on, on the many other very, very troubling issues emanating from Iran.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, So Rob, I'm going to come back to the protests a little bit later in this discussion. Um, And the reason why I say that is that, of course, you're responsible for enacting the Biden administration's entire uh, Iran policy. So that includes how to respond to the protests, but also the nuclear deal, Iran's activities in the region and Ukraine, sanctions policies, much else. So I'm going to address those one by one, but let's just start with the nuclear deal. Um, for the record, how close is Iran to a bomb right now?
2: So that's, you know, it's a tough question to ask, to answer, because there's how close they are to having an fissile material enriched at weapons grade. And that is, as we've said, only a few weeks. We're very close. And, you know, that's a result of very dangerous choices that the Iranian regime has made. It's also the result of the reckless decision by the Trump administration to withdraw from a deal that was working. So they're very close to having enough fissile material uh, for bomb weaponizing that takes longer, but it's much too close for comfort. So uh, we need to do what we can to stop their progress through diplomacy if possible, and then to and to 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 walk back for them to walk back their advances so that we are in a much better place than we are today.
0: You know, um, it's fair to say that so far, the talks have failed um talks between washington and tehran to try and revive the nuclear deal why do you think that's the case
2: well you know as you you mentioned in the opening president biden came into office and he campaigned on a commitment that he would try to get back into the deal if iran would reciprocate and we spent a good part of two years uh the entire u.s administration uh, my team working to that end very good faith efforts i think if you asked any participant uh, in the talks they would say that the u.s played a very good faith role in trying to get back into the deal and then many times we came very close most recently in august and each time uh, iran stepped back and said that they would come up and they came up with some new demand often a demand that had nothing to do with the nuclear talks most recently having to do with inspections by the international atomic energy agency always suggesting to us that the iranian system as a whole was divided had not yet concluded whether they really wanted to come back into the deal. And so each time we came very close, deals that were presented not by us, but by the European Union that was supported by us, by the the three European countries, Germany, France, and the UK, by Russia and by China, no friends of ours in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. And yet all of them said that the deal on the table was a fair one, Iran is the one that walked back and that rejected it on more than one occasion. So you'd have to ask them why, but from our perspective, it's that they simply haven't made the decision So if I
0: can push you just a little bit uh, about that last instance you mentioned four months ago, August in Vienna, you were close to a deal. Um, Are you able to tell us a little bit about what kinds of demands Iran made? Um, And if not, like how different were they from the norm of demands they've made in the past?
2: Well, it's very clear. I could be very open about it because others have spoken to it. We had basically a deal, very close, you know, uh, and then at the last minute, after having said that they broadly agreed with the outlines, Iran came up with this demand, which has periodically surfaced on their part, which was that they wanted the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to close off, basically to conclude by a date certain, investigations into uh, uh, the presence, the unexplained presence of uranium particles in Iran. It is the IEA's fundamental job to be able to say that all nuclear material is under safeguards. Because Iran is not responding to the questions, the IEA can't make that determination. And we said there's no linkage between the JCPOA and the, the, this probe. It had to go on independently without any political pressure. And Iran, at the last minute, September 1st, or around that date, said, wait a minute, we can't accept the JCPOA unless we have an assurance that these probes will be concluded by date certain. We, along with our European partners, said that's a no-go. We cannot accept anything that's gonna put pressure on the agency. It's an independent agency. Iran has one way of concluding that investigation, which is to answer the questions the I.A. has put to them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's, that's why the, the talks failed at that time.
0: You know, um, Rob, you, you have critics, of course, um, many of them in Israel, many around the world, um, some of whom who've said that at the time when it seemed you were close to a deal, a deal that, you know, these critics have considered to be flawed, um, that you and your team were ready to give the Iranians uh, everything under the sun just to get back into the JCPOA. Um, what do you say to them now, now that a deal seems so far away, almost
2: hopeless? Well, first of all, of course we have critics, but that 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 is a, that was a nonsensical uh, accusation. The fact is. Iran didn't accept the deal. If they had everything that they had wanted, of course, they they, they would have said yes. What we were prepared to do was to lift those sanctions that were supposed to be lifted under the JCPOA and which had been uh, put back into effect by the Trump administration. But listen, given where we are today, Iran has rejected countless opportunities to come back into the deal. We are not – we're not going to simply wait to see what they decide. We've continued, as we've always said, preparing for world with the JCPOA or without the JCPOA. We've continued to put pressure on Iran to try to to, to enforce our sanctions, to make sure that they are sanctions for their support for terrorism, for the human rights violations, for the ballistic missile program, and for their nuclear program. And we've continued to do that, and that's where we are today. The JCPOA is not on the agenda because of Iran's position, and we're continuing with our policy, which is to respond to all of Iran's destabilizing activities.
0: You know, and just to be clear, I mean, you've said in the past that there will come a point where it cannot be viable anymore to even try to reach a deal. What, what exactly is that point for you?
2: Well, it's a technical question more than a political one. It's when our nuclear experts will tell us that the non-proliferation benefits of the deal uh, don't justify, don't warrant the, the sanctions relief that we would be uh, offering. So when we get to that point, the deal will be dead. But again, I, I do want to emphasize we're not spending our time now focused on the deal. It's not where our energies are because the Iranians, you know, did what they did to, to turn it down. Our focus is on the, what's happening in Iran and the Iran support uh, for Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine. That's that's where our energies are. That's where our focus is, because Iran has basically turned its back on the deal uh, one time too many.
0: Yeah. And I will turn to uh, the Russia-Ukraine issue. But, you know, you mentioned um, just a couple of minutes ago that there are factions within Iran who you know, may see the deal differently than other factions do. Um, And this sort of raises the question, um, you know, how would you characterize um, Ibrahim Raisi as a president, as an interlocutor um, uh, on the deal, at least? Um, And then I also have to ask you, I mean, there have been rumors this year on and off that the Ayatollah is very unwell. At one point, there's a rumor that he had died. Um, Do you have any further sort of intelligence you can share with us on that?
2: Well, I could share with you that he's not dead, um, but I don't have I don't have more to report. I'm not I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not going to to speculate. It's clear that this is a you, you described it as a hardline regime. It's more hardline than uh, than some in the past. Uh, we're seeing it every day, and what they do in, in in Iran is of a piece with what they're doing with Russia. Um, in terms of the deal, you know, I I've said many times the key negotiation, the key discussion that needed to take place was not so much between Iran and the U.S., but between the Iranian regime in itself, because it does seem that there were some elements who were interested in the deal, and others who, for whatever reason, were not. And that's, that's what caused the impasse that, uh, that, that was created, but as to whether it was the president or others, I'll leave it to the Iranian leadership itself to, to explain.
0: You know, and then the other sort of main criticism uh, of the Biden administration on Iran has been that this administration just simply took too long to get around to focusing uh, on the JCPOA, on the Iran nuclear deal. What's your response? And at this point, uh, you know, are there regrets about not acting more quickly?
2: So I'll let historians look back at at, at what might have happened. But I think there's a little bit of, of revisionism. It, it You know, within about a month, Uh, the US had made a month of President Biden coming into office with everything else that was on his plate, COVID crisis, uh, first and foremost, Uh, within a month, we made clear to the European Union, which is the coordinator, that we were prepared to meet immediately to, to, to start negotiations. The Iranians had then had all these conditions, they wouldn't meet with us, they wouldn't meet in certain circumstances. But you know, a month is not that long when you consider everything else on the President's plate. And the fact is that very quickly, we made clear that we were prepared to lift all of the sanctions and consistent with the JCPOA if Iran was prepared to come back into compliance. So, you know, could we have moved faster? Could we move differently? I'll leave it to others to judge, but very quickly, we made clear what our position was, and then the stalling that, 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 that took place was all on, uh, on Iran's side.
0: Mm. Talk us through a little bit about the plan in place um, to stop Iran from becoming a nuclear power. Um, you know, what, what kinds of sort of military options are on the table?
2: Well, first, I think, and the president has made this clear, our, our priority is diplomacy. It's the, it's, been, it's the proven way. It's the best way. It's the most sustainable way to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. And that still remains our preference. Now, there are other tools that we're already using. Pressure, international pressure, of a kind that Iran has not experienced for many, many years. Remember, under the Trump administration, much of the world, including our three European allies uh, in in the negotiations, spent at least as much time blaming the U.S as they were blaming Iran for its uh, nuclear advances. So we've now, we're in a very different situation today where we're working in lockstep with uh, with the UK, with France, with Germany, with so many countries around the world. Look at the vote at the IEA Board of Governors. There is a vast majority of countries today, and not just Western countries, that understand that the pressure has to be put on Iran to stop its nuclear advances. Now. That said, so we will have the sanctions, we'll have the pressure, we'll have the diplomacy. If none of that works, the president has said, and as a last resort, he will agree to a military option. Because if that's what it takes to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, that's what will happen. But we're not there. We're still hopeful that we will find other means, and that Iran will change its current path, because it will best. It will be best for everyone.
0: I have to ask you, given the uh, recent midterm election results, um, you know, with a Republican House in place in 2023, um, how would that begin to change America's Iran policy? I mean, you've, of course, served under um, uh, three U.S. presidents now, so you have a fair sense of the ebb and flow of um, how policies change when when, uh, Congress changes. What do you expect to change vis-a-vis Iran?
2: I don't know that much will change. Of course, we know that the the, the Republican Party has been uh, very very strongly against uh, against any 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 nuclear deal, at least the JCPOA. JCPOA is at this at this point not on the agenda anyway. So I'm not sure that it will affect that. But you know, we've tried, and again, it was one of the instructions President Biden gave gave me and and the team. We've tried to have as bipartisan a policy as possible. It's proven extremely difficult, but we consult regularly with the Republican and Democratic members of Congress and will continue to do so. And hopefully we could agree on a large chunk of our policy because we all agree Iran shouldn't acquire a nuclear weapon. We all agree that we need to put pressure and to do, uh, take steps to, uh, to stop Iran's transfer of, of weapons to Russia. And we all agree that we need to support the Iranian people as they struggle for uh, uh, against, uh, against the repression that they, that they face.
0: You know, so Rob, I want to ask you a broader sort of almost philosophical question. I mean, by your own admission, Iran's closer to a nuclear bomb than it's ever been. Um, Obviously, we've got now a generation of policymakers in the U.S. who've tried to prevent this from happening, uh, all with good intentions. But of course, you know, there were so many other factors involved. Um, But I want to ask you about, you know, how you think through U.S. policy and the potential for it to backfire. I bring this up because of sanctions. There's just a growing body of work that argues that Washington is overusing its power to sanction other countries and then force compliance upon the whole world. You know, these kinds of criticisms, you know, broadly have, I think, two sets of negative impacts. First, that the world is beginning to tire of following U.S.-led policies, which often disrupt local and regional alliances. And then second, sanctions often don't work. They often just backfire. So how would you respond to those critics when it comes to Iran?
2: So first, I think it's a very fair question. As you know, uh, I mean, even this administration, Treasury Department uh, uh, looked to to try to take a a better view, a stronger uh, perspective in terms of the impact of sanctions and how can they be better you know, better constructed so that they don't backfire, so that they, they hurt the right people, not the wrong people. And as you said, uh, there are cases where sanctions have ended up hurting ordinary citizens as opposed to the, the rulers that we're trying to, or, or the leaders who are trying to, uh, to to target. So I think it's a fair question. I think it's a very difficult uh, balancing act. We're seeing it every day. I think more work needs to be done. I'll be you know, candid. I think we need to fine tune our sanctions. It's not the answer. If it had been the answer, then, you know, Iran would not be pursuing a nuclear weapon. It's not pursuing a nuclear weapon at this point, but it would not be advancing its nuclear program. Uh, We've would different results in many countries across the globe. So, of course, we owe it to ourselves to have an honest examination of, of how sanctions work and how they don't work. In this particular case, in the case of Iran, there was a, you know, let's go back. I don't want to sound overly nostalgic, but the JCPOA was a result of diplomacy backed by sanctions, but sanctions that were keyed off and that were that were targeted in a way that we made clear that if Iran took certain steps, difficult steps, but realistic steps, those sanctions will be lifted. So it worked once. We hope that something like that could work in the future. But again, I'm not going to dispute the premise of your question, which is that sanctions are a very uh, tricky tool and we have to be even better than we have been in making sure that they don't hurt uh, ordinary citizens. And that they achieve the results that we are seeking.
0: Fair enough. I'll take that. So I want to circle back to the protests, and then you know, after that, I'll take us to Russia and Ukraine. Um, just broadly, um, how would you define U.S. policy towards uh, the the peaceful, so far, you know, democratic protests in
2: Iran? Well, it's it's one of support for the legitimate uh, aspirations of the Iranian people and for their. Uh, uh, you know, for the fundamental freedoms the fundamental rights that all citizens across the, across the globe should enjoy. So, you know, we have made clear we are mobilizing international attention, putting the spotlight on what's happening in Iran. It's very important that the world know at a time when the Iranian regime is to try, trying to hide what's happening and to distort what's happening. So to put the spotlight to make sure that Iranians have the ability to express themselves, to share through the, through social media, through the Internet, to share information with each other and with the outside world. Also to put, to, to put the spotlight on what's happening by sanctioning those up and down the chain in Iran who are violating the, the basic rights of the Iranian people, whether it's the top leadership or whether it's an anonymous person in a, in, a, in a prison in Iran who thinks that he or she can remain anonymous. No, we're gonna make sure that the world knows that the Iranian people know who is behind that repression. And then just organizing as you know international efforts, whether it's at the UN, at the UN Human Rights Council, we will soon try to uh, get Iran kicked off of the, the Commission on the Status of Women because it's an aberration, it's a complete uh, uh, anomaly that Iran would be on the Commission that's supposed to defend the rights of women when they're repressing them. Um, so the tools of diplomacy, of sanctions, of making sure that our own sanctions, which exist, do not interfere with the, the ability of Iranians to communicate. So we've taken steps to, to loosen, to make sure that we could, we, that licenses are given to those who want to, to, to provide internet services to Iranians. So all of that, and we're doing it by the way, not just with our European traditional allies, we're doing it with a large coalition of countries North and South. I mean, just look at the votes at the, at the Human Rights Council. Mm. I mean, Iran, the Iranian regime is more isolated now than it's been in a very long time. And that's because we together with many others have made sure that the truth of what's happening in Iran is, is visible for all to see.
0: Mm. You know, um, Rob, recently you had a sort of mini Twitter sort of uh, kerfuffle, um, I think, in part because you tweeted saying that Iranians were protesting to, quote, respect their human rights and dignity. And then there were some critics who said that they were, in fact, protesting for much more than that, um, including regime change itself. I know that since then you've um, spoken to many Iranian Americans. Um, Just talk us through a little bit about how your thinking has evolved about where these protests are heading.
2: So, you know, it was a, it was a mistaken uh, formulation because it's, it's not up to me, it's not up to the U.S. government to define what the Iranian aspirations are. I mean, the protesters are doing a pretty good job of, of defining it themselves. So our goal is to support the fundamental rights, the rights, as I said, of any citizen of this globe, uh, and in particular of Iranian citizens, and we will continue to voice our support. You know what's clear is that uh, these are extraordinary it's an extraordinary page of iran's history that's being written right now Uh, the courage the determination the persistence the creativity of iranians particularly iran iranian women and girls they're writing this page of their history we're not going to be the authors we can be there to express support again for the fundamental rights of Iranians. But this page will be written by Iranians themselves, and it won't be written in Washington, in London, or anywhere uh, around the globe other than in Iran.
0: Hmm. How would you differentiate between the US response, as you're describing it right now, to these protests uh, in 2022 in Iran, to, for example, the Green Movement in 2009, or, for example, the protests around the Arab Spring? Um, what do you think you've learned from, from those responses and how are we applying that now?
2: So you, I you've heard uh, the National Security Advisor and, uh, and others speak to this. I think you've heard former President Obama speak to this and, 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 and wonder whether things could have, we could have acted differently in 2009. I was not part of the Obama administration at that time. But I think, you know, I, for me, there's two lessons. First, a lesson of humility. The United States is not going to decide the course of, 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 of other nations, whether it's uh, whether it is Iran, whether it's the, the, the countries in the Arab world that you that you mentioned. So we have to be humbled and not think that we're the ones who could or should uh, determine the trajectory of, of popular uprisings, popular unrest or, or, or whatever uh, breaks out in those countries. On the other hand, I think we have to learn another lesson, which is the truer we are to our values, the more consistent we are with our values, the better off because we shouldn't be saying one thing uh, and, and thinking another. And so, in the case of Iran, because we believe that fundamental human rights should be respected by by the by the regime, and that the the the, the Iranian people have the right to the same freedoms, the same dignity that people around the world uh, are entitled to, we should speak loudly about that, and we should not uh, pull our punches in saying what we think and making clear that uh, we are watching what the Iranian regime is doing, and that we intend together with others in the international community to hold them to account. So I think it's one of you know, being truthful, but also being humble.
0: All right. Uh, you, you know, just to follow up on that, I mean, the Washington under, you know, your guidance here has announced a license which makes it easier for Iranians to escape the censorship that the regime has tried to impose on them. I mean, isn't one way of looking at a policy like that, that the U.S. is in fact um, interfering or
2: meddling? Well, I mean, it's a bit ironic. It's really the first time I could recall that the Iranian regime is complaining because we've loosened one of our sanctions. I mean, what was getting in the way, presumably, of, of, you know, tech companies doing what they do around the world were, were our sanctions. So we've removed an obstacle. We're not interfering. We've removed an obstacle that was preventing or at least that made it harder uh, and creating a disincentive for some tech companies to, to provide their services to Iranians. And we've made clear, we've clarified our policy to make clear that we're not going to uh, uh, obstruct that service. So no, that's that's not interference. It's it's aligning our policies in Iran to what we should do elsewhere, which is to promote the free flow of information.
0: All right. Let's move to Russia, Ukraine then. Um, you know, it's it's become quite clear that uh, you know, Iran has become more involved. Uh, it has, of course, been providing military equipment and now even sort of manufacturing aid to Putin. Um, broadly, um, how does Washington see this and how does it plan to respond?
2: So first, I take a step back and, and, and realize what, what you just said, which is quite extraordinary that uh, Iran, uh, the Iranian regime, which uh, has for decades said that it had been during the Iran-Iraq war the victim. Of a war of aggression of a violation of its sovereignty now taking sides with russia in a war of aggression to invade a a neighbor providing them with military uh, equipment to do so and with trainers to do so that's that's an extraordinary statement iran has tried to deny it the iranian regime has tried to deny it coming up with different stories every time but focus shouldn't be on different stories it should be on a different policy they should stop the support but it says a lot about Obviously, the state of, of, of Russia's military that they need to turn to Iran of all places for support. And it says a lot about Iran, this Iranian regime, that it would be prepared to cross that that line and to interfere in a European in a conflict on the European and the European continent, helping the aggressor in a war uh, of invasion against uh, against Ukraine. I think that speaks volumes. We have already taken steps to make it harder for Iran to transfer those drones. Uh, and other military equipment, we're working in partnership with others around around the world to sanction and to take other steps that we that 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 we will be uh, looking into to make sure that it is as hard as possible for Iran to transfer those deadly weapons that are helping Russia kill and uh, and target uh, uh, civilians in Ukraine. So first of all, again, putting the spotlight, not allowing Iran to get away with another lie, making sure that people can see that the regime is doing what it says it's not. Secondly, taking steps through sanctions and other means to make sure that it is as hard as possible for Iran to continue down this path.
0: But you know, Rob, this sort of circles back to my earlier point about sanctions often backfiring, because in this case, when you have a maximum pressure campaign where you're already doing so much, to retard Iran's growth, to constrain its ability to conduct its sort of domestic and foreign policy, then it sort of backs to the wall when it goes and does something like what it's just done in Russia and Ukraine. Um, In a sense, isn't that an example of previous policy having backfired, maybe even led us to this point? But also, what else do you have left in the arsenal of options to even do anything?
2: So again, I, I take your point. I've written about it in, in other capacities. When I'm not in government, I think you raise very good questions about the, you know, how blunt an instrument sanctions can be. And we need to do as good as as uh, strong an effort on our part to make sure that that those sanctions are can be fine tuned. Now, in this case, listen, let, let's be clear, this is not a case where we impose maximum pressure with impossible demands on Iran. There was a clear deal on the table, Iran could have had the lifting of some of the sanctions, and therefore have a very different path. They chose not to. You know, there's only so much we can do under those circumstances. Uh, we, are, we will sanction uh, what we can, but this is a sanction that doesn't help hurt the Iranian people. These are sanctions against military transfers to, to Russia, and we are trying to be as effective as we can on that, working with others to make sure that our sanctions against Russia and against Iran could minimize those transfers. So listen, you're not going to find an argument for me that the maximum pressure campaign of the Trump administration was uh, was a failure, and it, 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 we're still living with that legacy. But at this point, Iran was given, the, the Iranian regime was given an opportunity to get back to where we were in 2015-16. They chose not to, you know, you should ask them why why they made that decision.
0: Hmm. Um, last question, since we're back on the Iran nuclear deal, how does the new Israeli government um, led by Netanyahu famously pressured the U.S. to get out of the nuclear deal in the first place, um, how does that now change things for you um, and for America's broader position on Iran?
2: So it's too soon to say, um, you know, the, the government has not been formed yet. But I would simply note that when uh, the Biden administration came in, came into office, our counterpart was Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we dealt with them very openly, very candidly. I think both sides tried to learn the lessons of what didn't work uh, in in 2015, 16, and try not to replicate some of what had happened then. And now we're back with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I expect we're gonna have very close conversations. You know, There may be some disagreements on Iran, but on the fundamentals, which is preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon, uh, uh, making sure that we could respond and counter Iran's destabilizing activities across the region, on that, there's a lot of commonality. We'll have to work through whatever differences may or may not, uh, may, may, may exist. But again, we worked with, the, with, the, uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu at the very beginning of the administration. We're back now and I, I suspect we'll have uh, uh, very close coordination as well.
0: And just, uh, if I may, a very quick last question, You know, just given the sort of connection here um, through Iran between these two big foreign policy priorities for America, the ending the war in Ukraine, um but also ensuring iran doesn't move towards developing a bomb or doesn't get closer to that point uh, just given the 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 how how these two are now connected um through iran helping russia do you think there's any scenario in which um you know russia would use the iran nuclear negotiations to pressure the us to maybe tweak or adapt its position on ukraine or vice versa whether the war in ukraine uh, and america's involvement in it Um, tweaks how it views the Iran nuclear deal?
2: I don't know. It's a good question. You know, we've had, uh, we don't have much interaction with Russia uh, of late, so their views on the nuclear deal is not entirely uh, transparent to us. Our view will remain, the door to diplomacy is open, because we do think that the best way to resolve uh, the, the nuclear problem is through diplomacy. Um, and, but at the same time, we're not going to, to, to restrain ourselves or to deter ourselves in terms of pushing back against Iran's support for uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine or pushing back against uh, Russia's aggression itself. And I should have added one of the other steps that we will take is provide Ukraine with what it needs to, to confront and to counter uh, whatever it is facing. And if that includes uh, Iranian drones, let alone Iranian missiles, then we'll have to help Ukraine defend itself against those. Understandably.
0: Rob Malley, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Robbie, thanks. It's been a pleasure. As always,
0: great to have you on. You've been listening to FP Live, Foreign Policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com/slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbro Talam, Rosie Julin, and Yurei Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Stiles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better.
0: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com